Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. If you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active, passive, you're just an industry insider, this is the one YouTube show and podcast that has been designed especially for you to give you all of the most up-to-date and the best information and sources, new data, research, and analysis on the multifamily industry, housing industry, and the macro economy at large. I'm joined by Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Gray Capital. Some shocking stories today. Going to be looking at the multifamily industry reports from CBRE, Bercadia, RealPage, housing reports from Fannie Mae, National Association of Home Builders, and looking at the macro side from Slate and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. You're going to want to watch the whole episode. Make sure you like, subscribe, and follow for more. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to The Gray Report. Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Gray Capital, put a great report together for us. Once again, reminder, though, just before we get into it, Matt, you can catch all of these reports and a whole lot more by signing up for The Gray Capital newsletter, The Gray Report. Hop on over to graycapitalllc.com. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Again, packed full of all the most up-to-date research reports. It is known as the best real estate and multifamily newsletter in the world, I yep. believe. So anyway, Matt, a lot of interesting stuff, macro economy, multifamily and housing, which is what we're always already talking about. Let's start with macro. Inflation Reduction Act was passed by the Senate on Sunday. Doesn't look like we're going to be reducing much inflation with it. Slate's got an interesting yeah. breakdown. I would be here. I'd be curious to hear kind of your analysis and reporting as well. It seems like it is mostly a kind of quasi climate bill focusing on health care and the IRS. Again, I'm not really sure how that's going to tackle inflation other than they say that's going to reduce the deficit over time. Kind of sounds like a smokescreen to me, but who knows? Maybe there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I that's what I said at first is like inflation reduction. It, it's a nice name. Yeah. I think all these names when you're when you're getting a spending bill that are this big, the name's the nice. It's whatever it's whatever the do, moment. Do you is. think that they just say like, what name can we put the, on this that may be palatable? It doesn't matter what's yeah. in the bill. Let's just let's just pick a good name. Yeah, I, I completely I completely yeah. think that. I have noticed more people actually talking about like the climate provisions than any kind of aggressive approach to inflation in the bill. It's interesting. They're not even giving like lip service to the inflation reduction aspect. No. You'll hear some critical stuff about how it doesn't necessarily re reduce inflation. But like the actual the actual meat of the bill is being talked about, talked about and praised from the left for, uh, yeah. I think, a lot for climate. You know, aspect. it's just curious, you know, if, if, if that's such an important thing to do, and, and it probably is to take some action on on climate. But uh, why not champion on that and, you know, run on that rather than, you know, the opposite and just put up some smoke screen. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, it's politics. So um, we'll have to give forgive them yeah. you know, to a degree. Yeah, but, uh, um, the, the article itself does summarize it, and it says, to a first approximation, the bill amounts to a $370 billion climate investment paid for by prescription drug savings and tax changes. The bill's three baskets can then be analyzed separately, but the baskets are so tightly woven together that any normative assessment of the legislation must account for all three. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of getting one thing because they're uh, giving a little bit on the other side, and they're, you know, they're trying to balance as much, and that at least they have an impulse. Can yeah. we give them that? <laughs> uh, an impulse to no. kind of balance the books but again there this is a massive deal and and even if there is elements that aren't directly related to multifamily there's going to be some ancillary you know kind of knock-on effects whether it's exactly you know the spending i mean spending yeah. it drives inflation exactly um, you know kind of at the end of the day and then obviously the changes to um kind of the tax regime which it, some of them are changes to the tax code in a sense that they've got this minimum corporate tax on corporations that are making over a billion dollars a mm -hmm. year. Um, but the big thing is they're hiring a lot more IRS agents. Yeah. And with the idea that they're going to be going after, you know, the 1% or whatever. But the reality is the people who have the money that they say they want to go after also have the means to fight the IRS. Mm -hmm. And so the IRS ends up going after the individuals who don't have the means to appeal and fight the IRS. So it's middle class individuals, which, again, it's like that's where that's the biggest chunk of the population. That's where like the most like revenue can be generated yeah. from taxes. No one likes raising taxes on the middle class. But this is a tax on the middle class 
but just in guise of, you know, eating the rich. Well, maybe they all decide. Maybe all these new tax collectors decide they're not going to go after the middle income. They're yeah. going to go after yeah. the rich. Yeah. You know, um, without any clarity on that issue, though, it's, it's hard to it's hard to trust that it's not going to. I Yeah, I, I think they're going to do what they do and they're going to run every, you know, yeah. run everybody over like they typically, you know, as they do as federal government tends to operate. Um, so but it's an interesting breakdown from Slate. I recommend you checking it out again, whether that's on from the newsletter um, or grayreport.com. Matt, any other takeaways from the the slate piece? You know, one thing that's not in that bill is the carried interest. Uh, yeah, good point. And uh, we did call that, or you specifically called. Yeah, last, we, we, yeah, last, last week. week because that was a big um, uh, a big point uh, for moving this forward. Um, was you know Joe Manchin basically said he was open to raising taxes by taxing carried interest or you know to promote related to private equity, including real estate. Um, basically, you're gonna have to hold that asset for three years for it to you know qualify closer to capital gains rather than ordinary income the debate around basically how, how do you classify carried interest is that mm-hmm. really income or is that in really investment income and capital gains you know it's not a guarantee that a promoter will get that and mm-hmm. it is like their sweat equity in a deal i don't see how that is an investment income um really this should be tax as capital gains. And again, you know, it's easy to say, you know, these are big fat cats on Wall Street um, that are just are making a lot of money, which people are making a lot of money. But it's also, I think, a misunderstanding of how just capitalism works in general of how capital is allocated throughout the economy. And that these groups are capital allocators. And it's how we allocate resources as a society. You can not like that or, or like that. But we are punishing those capital allocators and again, it's not going to generate much revenue. And as we discussed last week, mm-hmm. it was essentially a call for tribute from Wall Street to the yep. Democratic Party of saying, hey, we're going to bring up this carried interest loophole again. You don't want it to happen. All right. Time to pay the toll. Mm, yeah. Pay up. Pay your tribute. Mm-hmm. That happened. A lot of lobbyists had a lot of great dinners. They that had, week, I wonder. <laughs> had, had a busy had a busy week, week and weekend. Then Chris and Simon came in and was like, ah, no, I don't want to do the carried interest loophole. Yeah. And it got cut as we uh, anticipated yeah it would last week yeah so, uh and and only only really because this discussion has happened like two or three times before oh yeah and and uh anyone you know like oh they're talking about carried interest again it's like an easy thing to talk about and that's yeah. not gonna happen yeah yeah so, so i don't know anything can happen um but moving on let's talk about more mm-hmm. macro stuff this week we've got a new cpi print from the bureau of labor and statistics Inflation is, growth is flattening. Yeah, you know it's still hot inflation, but it is certainly flattened uh, compared to um, the the last month, and we're not seeing continued growth. Which you could say there's some seasonality that's associated with that, but uh, better than having uh, higher growth. Yeah, um, no change in the CPI numbers. In, I wonder, you know. <laughs> There's a little bit of wishful thinking. There's a little bit of doubt. I think that people still have because they're still feeling inflation. Um, the core CPI went up a little, and there's some pretty clear indications that a good p- part of these the full CPI number, which includes food and energy prices, yeah. um, are falling due to gas prices. Gas prices fell pr- precipitously <laughs> uh, last month, and that really had a big effect. Food actually still increased slightly, but the but gas prices really um, sunk down a pretty good amount since last month, um, especially when last month they increased by 11%. So uh, a 7.7% reduction, that's that's great. Um, shelter is is another relative, really, um, in that, and you can find that on the next tab, actually. Um, there's a detailed view which includes shelter, which is particularly relevant for, for multifamily housing. And as a subcategory, rental housing went up, but it went up 0.5, which is slightly less than last month's 0.6. Rental housing of a primary residence increased by 0.7%, which is slightly less than last month's 0.8%, but still within the same range as the previous few months. And and like you take 12 months of these 0.7% price increases and you get an 8.4% increase um, in rent prices if these inflation numbers for rental housing stay the same throughout the year. So you know, kind of like you spread that over a year and you're almost at what inflation is um, right now, uh, like year over year. And I... It's going to happen. The momentum of the housing supply crisis is being felt, and we're still seeing continued rent growth. And 
even you know uh, even in my drive over when the when the CPI just was announced I could hear news anchors calling out shelter inflation as something that everyone is watching it's really starting to rise and it will become a significant driver of inflation more so than it already is and and it may be because all the other aspects of inflation are going to fall relative relatively it's going to keep it buoyed yeah and, yeah, and this is just going to keep well, it up. it's sti- it's sticky and it's like long lasting and it mm-hmm. happens over time and this something we've talked about constantly over the last almost two years now, Matt, is that there's a the difference between kind of market rent growth and effective rent growth. Yeah. And we've seen an incredible we're still seeing strong market rent growth, which we weren't we thought we might see some, but it was more of the you know market rent gets up to here and then there takes a couple of years for all of those in place rents to finally get up to market if people renew, 50% of people are renewing at a lower rate. So it takes a while to get all the way up to market. Mm-hmm. Um so it takes time to be fully absorbed. But we're seeing even more increases in the market rents, you know, beyond that. And yeah. so it's not only are we seeing a short-term impact, but we know there's going to be a, a decently long tail of rent inflation over the next couple of years, yeah. which I think is part of that assumption that we're going to see elevated levels of inflation for a while. And then that goes into the wage discussion of, mm-hmm. you know, our, our, what drives what? Is it uh, wages allow for further rent increases or is it rent increases that actually lead to wage increases? Someone gets a renewal notice, your rent's going up $100 a month, $200 a month, in some cases even more than that in mm-hmm. some markets. You're going to an employer and saying, look. Yeah, because it's the biggest. It, it's, it's, a, it's a third of, yeah. of, of, your, uh, of, what you, of your spend of yeah. an individual's budget. So it, you've got good evidence and good reason to saying, hey, I need, I need a raise because mm-hmm. my rent's gone up. Yeah. So And employers you know, want to keep and retain talent, kind of have to do it. And so... It'll be interesting to see, you know, how earnings go and if employers can keep up with their employees' um, demands and what really that pricing power of employees do yep. have. There's some debate of, you know, how strong the labor market is or or is not right now. I mean, the, you know, the headline unemployment number, I mean, we're at, what, 40-year lows still or, yeah. you know, or more? That's, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about we'll that. Get in, we'll get into that in a second, but, you know, it, but then... You can be who are you counting in that number? There's some de- debate. The participation mm-hmm. rate is low. And we'll get into that in a second. I ju- yeah, I just think that this interaction, what you said, is is so crucial to, and it's one of the reasons why I'm still not. I don't. I still don't think we're necessarily out of the woods for inflation um, because there's this interaction between rents and jobs, and we saw such good jobs numbers. And rent is not gonna not gonna calm down um, very easily. We're still not building uh, as much as we need to, and um, that. And we could just get get to a point where wages are going up and rents are going up at a slower, though eventually I think they will normalize and come back down, but it's going to take them a lot longer to do so yeah. um, than, you know, a price of, uh, you know, Ritz bits or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I would also say, I mean, yeah, it's going to be interesting with wages and we are seeing in the kind of that C class spectrum, we're having, you know, there are delinquency issues, evictions are, you know, going yeah. up. People are having a hard time paying, especially last month with gasoline prices so mm. high. I think that probably has led to um, a lot of people trying to you know, miss payments on, on rent. Yeah. Um, so it, we're, we kind of need to see some of that wage growth in that bottom quartile to really kind of um, yeah. keep driving things, which we, we've seen some evidence. You know, for. and I do. I don't want to like like splash cold water on. It is good news that mm. that all these areas of the CPI were going down, yeah. and um, and you know it does decrease slightly the chances that maybe the Fed's gonna lower interest rates. But then again, there's these. Well, yeah, exactly. That, and it sounds like they're, they're pretty confident on the next one doing probably another seventy five basis points. But it's mm-hmm. more of like after that and how long, how many more hikes, yeah. and then does does it affect their guidance? Even though they say they're not going to give much guidance, but if we look at the dot plot, you know, the bond market is predicting that there's going to be some reduction in rates, kind of yeah. the latter half of twenty three. Um, we'll, we'll we'll have to we'll have to see. Mm. All right. Um, according to Bloomberg, Fed rate hike forecast raised at J.P. Morgan Evercore on blowout jobs report. Um, so speaking of jobs, Matt, we just spoke of it. Yeah. Big job report. Um, this was last week. Um, but ag- again, this is on the opposite side. This is, you know, giving uh, the Fed again, as it says, the feds is going to do another 75 basis point because the labor market is so strong apparently i see and i think this and i may have uh suggested this earlier in our last i think this is bigger news than the cpi report arguably at least to me because the the inflation numbers yes are a relative um predictor but they're from last month and mm. even though these jobs numbers were from last month i think that there's lots there's a more significant story about the economy and how um and how inflation is playing out with these job numbers in combination with inflation 
rather than just thinking about you know oh, well there's there's great jobs that's and that's the <laughs> And that's the uh, problem here is, is it's like, can we not have any good news? Is it, is it impossible to have good news? Yeah, because no, the good news isn't good news. The yeah, bad news yeah. is good news. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's hard to make sense of it in this economy because yeah. it, it's a yeah, good news, seemingly good news for the consumer is bad news because if based on what the Fed might do. Yeah, because exactly. Because if you have, you know, normally you'd think, oh, more jobs, that's great. But now it's like, oh, no, it's either more jobs, we're going to get inflation, or now there's less jobs, we're going to get in uh, recession. So it's it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. But um, in terms of the of the fan of the Fed land, the plane metaphor, I kind of don't I don't know if there's anywhere to land at all. Uh, <laughs> we we can't even find a runway. Maybe we're looking for an empty field. It's like a stretch of highway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that another thing that kind of contextualized where we at in terms of the jobs, um, the jobs market is these proclamations that jobs are finally back to pre-pandemic pre-pandemic norms actually i can i think that you can kind of get close to an answer on the question of job growth if you look exactly at where these pre-pandemic unemployment levels were and if you look at um the fred unemployment chart yeah um it you know, stretches back to 48 uh, 1948 and 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 you've and you've told me that you know they measured it a little bit differently in the past yeah today. whether you know if, if if individuals are underemployed for the last couple of decades we've been using the same metric so i think that's important to use to use the same metric but it, it is important to note that they they have been counting unemployment differently um over time yeah Really, the unemployment rate in January and February of 2020, this is this pre-pandemic low, was 3.5%, which is what it is right now. The last time, before that, before that pre-pandemic time, the last time that the unemployment rate was, th was that low was 1968 and 1969. Other than that, the only other time the unemployment rate was as low was in the early 50s, really from 1951 to 1953. So there's only really two moments in time where the unemployment rate has ever been as low as it is right now. Um, so instead of saying something like unemployment's finally, finally back to where it was before the pandemic, we should say that unemployment is down to the exceptionally low levels we were seeing in the months before the pandemic. So given this context and the fact that aside from a couple months right before the pandemic, unemployment is the lowest it's been in 50 years, um, there's a good case to be made that we're kind of approaching full employment. We're at that point in the Phillips curve where turning up employment really could start to disproportionately fuel inflation. And that's why uh, I, I'm so interested in seeing what is happening with the jobs, because we haven't really seen as significant wage growth. And if, mm -hmm. and if higher employment numbers are pointing to wage growth down the line, then that's where it could really start. And I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, and again, neither of us are economists, man, but from my knowledge of, of economics is that typically you see a lot of that wage growth kind of near, closer to the end of the cycle. It's not usually the hmm. first thing okay. that, that happens. I mean, that certainly was the case in this last cycle as we saw almost no wage growth, you know, post 2008, 2009. Yeah. It wasn't until, you know, kind of pre the, you know, 2018, 19 was when we finally saw wage growth mm -hmm. and then the Fed started raising interest rates again. So, but how quick that we have gone back down to this unemployment level. I mean, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's incredibly, incredibly. And it's because I think we've, we're in a time accelerator um, or yeah. periods of time have shortened. I mean, we went through a recession incredibly quickly. We've seen the amount of, we've seen almost a decade's worth of growth in, you know, about two years in some yeah. markets and some commodities and pricing. And I don't, there's no reason to believe that we're still not on, a, on an accelerated you know, or compressed time scale. And because I, this is funny, I was picking up some uh, carry out food, mm -hmm. Chinese food last night, Matt, and yep. uh, at a house of Chang off of Keystone in oh, Minneapolis, yeah. I was sitting and waiting and they had some uh, economists uh, magazines and I was like, I'll grab one because like my phone died mm -hmm. and, I, and it was from 2012. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, wow. I was like, I was like, perfect. I was like a little time capsule. I was like, what's, <laughs> what was going on this episode yeah. on the, in this edition of the economist in 2012 <laughs> and the 10 year treasury was around where it is today. I think it was like 2.87. Yeah. And, but the unemployment rate was like, you know, 8.7%. Wow. And, you know, things were still not looking great then, but things were sort of better people didn't feel that like things were better but like yeah. that was you know a couple of years after the great financial crisis and we still had almost nine percent unemployment and now mm -hmm. we're you know just we're less than two years after a recession and we're down at you know 40-year low unemployment rate where it took yeah. almost a decade on the last cycle to get down to similar 
low unemployment levels. And then we saw start seeing wage growth. That's what I think the other kind of contextual thing that I got just from glancing at the chart is for as sharp as things have recovered in terms of the employment rate, man, the the recovery from the Great Recession was so much longer, so much obvious, so obviously longer compared to other, um, you know, to other moments in time where it's like, well, of course we did because it took us so long last time. Maybe maybe now we're making up for it. But there's like it was it was a long I mean, it was a long cycle. Long, I mean, it was the, I think it's the longest bull run um, in at least in, you know, recent recent history. Yeah. Um, you know, between, you know, 2000 and, you know, what, when was the date here? July 2009 all the way to February 2020. I mean, back here, the longest the next longest one would be March 1961 all the way to uh, January 1970. Um, so, yeah, just so like sandwiched between these two exceptional events, it's hard to predict. <laughs> yeah, maybe 91 and 2001. So about, you know, 10 years or so, which is a typical cycle. But this was, yeah, I mean, similar, a little bit, a little bit longer. Yeah. So, so depending on what your uh, on on what your proclivities are, you can you can find the silver lining yeah. in uh, in a dark cloud or you can find the dark cloud in the silver lining. Uh, it's it's really it, it is a strange moment, but I think that there are good signs. I think that job growth. It, it, I think that job growth. I'd take job growth over a lot of other um, a lot of other options. Me too. Yeah, I, so. I, I especially in the multifamily market because exactly. yeah, like we, sure. like we can track inflation. Like inflation. I mean, there are downsides downsides on the expense inflation or payroll and all of that, but. Mm-hmm. It's an overall um, benefit to multifamily when we, when we see inflation. We certainly have seen that over the last yeah, two years, to say really the least. Well, let's take a turn to multifamily, Matt, and looking at this report from CBRE, the commercial mortgage markets for the second quarter of 2022. I think this report gives some pretty interesting insight um, to you know how folks are financing all kinds of different commercial yeah. mortgages, not just multifamily, um, but you know it's obviously in that in that basket and. Uh, it's some granular information that you don't always see. Some of it, I think, is more anecdotal and mm-hmm. opinion. Some of it is actual data. But uh, take take us through, Matt, because you did a pretty good write up on it. Yeah. So this commercial mortgage market report was was really interesting, and it was a rare opportunity to look at some of the um, some of the trends in how these um, these lenders are making their decisions. And um, and one of these trends is a declining loan to value for commercial for commercial properties now i think that this report actually distinguishes commercial from residential it's not necessarily a commer- an inclusive commercial <laughs> at least as far as i understand it so they're talking about office yeah i think it's maybe office and retail um so commercial yeah. loan to value is 58.7% multifamily is at 61.7% and um and the average debt yield is 8.7 or 5% um, it looks like things are getting a little bit slower um, and that multifamily gets a little bit more wiggle room compared to other property types. Yeah. I, I think that what's really interesting in this report is their loan under their loan underwriting measures. And they talk about how um, how these loans, they're, what their standards are and how they're making their decisions. And one of the um, according to, to CBRE, the average LTV has gone down from 61.7. This is for. Um, I'm sorry, from 61.7 in, in the first quarter to 60% in the second quarter. Now, that's for overall all of the properties. Yeah. I got confused there because it was the same number as multifamily this month. But still, um, the pre-pandemic average was actually 65.3. So that's a pretty big dip yeah. in, in how much loan you can get um, for for a specific project. Now, I'm assuming that this loan-to-value isn't just what the what the customer decides. Yeah. It's based on what the yeah, bank is willing yeah, to give and you. It's got to pass the debt service coverage ratio. You have to to have enough cash in revenue coming in to not only cover your expenses, the mortgage, they want you to cover like, you know, typically 20 to 30% over, you know, your mortgage amount of, you know, free cash. Well, they don't want to mm-hmm. loan you up to amount of like, you're going to not have any cash at the end of the day, unless it's a, you know, development loan or something. Yeah. And it looks like things got a little bit easier. And then they yeah, got yeah they've they've they definitely eased and then they things. got harder <laughs> yeah so in, in Q2 2021 it may you had a lot more uh, you had a 64.6 um, and then things started falling from there well and, and but that they it, it the LTVs lowered because the interest rates were were higher it's because you couldn't cross a DSCR threshold but if you actually look they they loosened up on their DSCR mm. um, um, 
uh, you know, oh, yeah, hurdles. So it's 1.4 on average in Q2 of 22. Lenders are doing other things uh, for like um, using additional amortization. Mm -hmm. So like there was an option for 35 year amortization from, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on some loans for some qualified borrowers. People were using every trick in the book to try to maximize proceeds. There's a lot of kind of uh, tricks to the trade to be able to do that. You know, one of those, again, 35-year amortization certainly helps. Another thing that um, the groups have done is um, subordinating some of the expenses. This is really kind of like a, an enge financial engineering trick, but the lenders are banks are, are totally fine with it. And one of those tricks is taking your property management fee, which is included um, in above the line and just as mm -hmm. a normal like operating expense. Yeah. Um, but asset, man asset management fees are considered a below the line expense. And so what you can do is get creative with your property management company or if you're the property manager is you take a portion of your property management fee and you um, you put it below the line. Mm. Um, so you're only and so instead of taking a three and a half percent total property management fee, maybe you're going to take a, a three or a two point seven five percent. The remainder of that, the difference you take as an asset management fee below the line. So it doesn't count against your net operating income. Oh, wow. and so then so the lender doesn't look at that. The lender is totally fine with that as long as your property management company is fine with, again, subordinating that because it is. Uh, Instead of being paid before mm -hmm. you're, you pay the, the, the mortgage, which yeah. typically it's a, just an operating expense, you have to pay the mortgage first, then you can pay off that asset management fee. So you have to get okay with your property manager, but that's one way to, eat, to boost your NOI slightly so yeah. you can actually cross that DSCR threshold. Okay, and that, that kind of makes sense. sense. It's, yeah. a, it's who you pay, the, the amount. The, it, it, it's, like when it, when, yeah. it's, it's like the order it gets paid mm -hmm. and what it gets counted towards. And the lender's only looking at um, your, you know, your net operating income typically. See, this is what's interesting, and you don't, you don't normally get a look in kind of the black box of why, of what, in, and I'm sure that each bank has their own kind of standards and their own things that they look at a little bit. But things like um, what's the priority of, the, of certain expenses as they get paid, yeah. things like, and what they have on this chart here, they've got cap rate, amortization rate, yeah. um, loan to value, uh, debt service coverage ratio. Um, just looking, just even having. Having this little yeah. chart and spread well, out is it, really, and it, really it does depend on your lender. I mean, because even like in the agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are different. Where you know Freddie Mac is, it's like Freddie Mac's doing the underwriting. Freddie Mac is going to um, you know originate you know that loan, even though you may have some your kind of what you're going through. Mm -hmm. But on Fannie Mae, um, you know there are you know dust lenders, um, you know, direct um, underwriters and servicers mm -hmm. that have a lot more flexibility on their underwriting because they're the ones that actually they're actually underwriting it, so they have a lot more flexibility. You know, on the Fannie Mae side versus Freddie Mac. Now there may be other reasons we might go with Freddie Mac, um, but you know you don't want to assume just all the agencies are the exact same, or even each lender, even every Fannie Mae, you know, dust lender is the same. They're all a little bit different. On me, you know, they have different creative, you know, yeah. ideas, and it's also a relationship. Um, but then you know, different you know bridge lenders and other types of lenders also um, can be more or less more or less flexible. But still, for the most part. You have to have enough income to cover um, your debt service, and mm -hmm. if cap rates still are incredibly low, they haven't moved up. And yeah. if anything, they've kind of flattened and they're staying low. If, Even if in interest their rates are too. Sorry, what? Even in their standards too, it yeah. seems like they're not they're not giving they're not you a break. That much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but if interest rates, you know, if you're a floating rate, you know, you're paying, you know, some two percent. Uh, at the beginning of this yeah. year, now you're paying, you know, five you know, in the five to six percent range. Mm -hmm. So there's a big difference. There's a lot more uh, debt that you have to service that you know cuts out of a lot of your DSCR um, coverage, and so you just can't take out as large of a loan. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting, Matt, um, on this report is that this this decline in LTVs has did not just begin um, with the most recent mm -hmm. um, interest rate increases um, in March of 2022. If you actually look at it, there's been compression in LTVs, um, especially in multifamily, really kind of going back to 2016, 2017. And it would yeah. make sense that because in 2018, um, the Fed started raising interest rates, but it, there's really kind of been this trend line down since 2016. I mean, it really shows that the multifamily market is not over levered um, by any means, but there has been a big sharp decline. There was an increase in 2021 just because interest rates were so low, you could get yeah. an incredible amount of leverage and still pass those debt service coverage ratio tests. Mm -hmm. 
it's amazing the difference between that a year makes. I mean, it's night and day when you're looking at a deal right now. Yeah, it does. It it is kind of interesting to see um, as bumpy as it is. That things are that things are going down and uh, and it's still a pretty competitive market. Very competitive. It hasn't done. We've been, a, yeah, we've we, we've been honestly a little surprised. We thought that there'd be more buyers leaving the market or a little yeah. hesitant. No, no deals are still getting bid up. Cap rates are still low. People are still out there being aggressive. Yeah. Um, we thought that you know um, terms to acquire properties had kind of eased up a little bit more of a buyer's friendly market. That was like that lasted like a month and a half. It's so interesting because I remember we we talked about this about yeah. what was going to happen. We interviewed Noah Stone, who mm-hmm. um, formerly of, of Bricadia, and he really did a good job breaking down on like the volatility and was like, you know what, we don't see it's not gonna it's not gonna make so many waves if interest rates go up. Uh, yeah. and and then interest rates went up, and we were say we were, I was ready to say you know what it is kind of making some waves. But yeah. uh, not for very long. Well, and because, you know, he was looking at, um, you know, 2013 and 2018 rate increases. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, not much changed. And those were the vol. We saw so much more volatility in these rate increases in, yeah. the, in the speed and the, um, you know, there's the rate of change was so much greater. It's like a, not the, the most direct comparison, mm-hmm. but there, I think the analysis was correct is that. You know, multifamily kind of acted like a Teflon investment class, yeah. whether it's talking about through the pandemic or through these rate increases, um, it just kind of keeps chugging along. Um, you know, not that there aren't like some concerns like compared to other assets. I mean, yeah. the fundamentals are, you know, couldn't be more kind of straightforward. Yeah, I agree. Um, so let's keep talking about multifamily. Bercadia's mid-year 2022 national multifamily report. Um, a nice big American flag there on the cover. Um, obviously, this is a national report because it's got the got the um, got, the, got the American flag. So that's great. We love these Bricadia reports. Matt, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, this was a, a, a relatively concise report um, for a mid-year national report, but it it does begin with some contextual information about employment. Yeah. Um, just kind of as we signaled earlier, it talks about how wages wages grew 5.3% annually through mid-2022, up from a 3.4% increase in the, during the prior year. The strongest gains have been among low-skilled workers, contributing to more individuals returning to the workforce as the national unemployment rate tightened 230 basis points year over year to 3.6 by June 2022. Now it's 3.5, so it's it has come down even more. Class C apartments have shown slightly lower rent growth in the past compared to Class B mm-hmm. and A properties, and an increase in wage growth, I think, for low-wage workers could strengthen the conditions for these assets. On the supply side, we're seeing, I think, a lot of deliveries. Um, so yes, that, there's that employment on one hand, which is create, which is creating and supporting a strong um, a strong market for multifamily properties. But these deliveries um, are, uh, I don't think they're scary. <laughs> but Sarah, are we going to be oversupplied, Matt? What do you th- what do you think? I I don't I I think that we're going to have to build way more. That even though it is almost like a fifth of uh, like 20% more um, deliveries in 2023 than any of these years yeah. previous that they're showing in this chart. But this really emphasizes the the necessity to focus on market analysis, not necessarily national analysis. Like this is good. It's like, this is good mm-hmm. to know what we're building as a nation. It doesn't mean a whole lot from a multifamily investor standpoint, but if you're not talking about market by market. Yeah. So I mean, look, look, look at this. I mean, almost all, I mean, there's a big chunk of this is just Dallas, Fort Worth, set in South Florida, New York, Phoenix. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are in Dallas, Fort Worth, you know, if there's one market that can absorb it, Dallas might be a market that could absorb it. And same with South Florida. And so if that's the where the majority of the new supply is going on, there's other markets that are growing, but they're not getting the supply. Mm-hmm. They're really kind of still in the sweet spot for fundamentals. And then you could say, you know, I've heard people say people aren't moving to Dallas or South Florida anymore. I, I call uh, malarkey on, yeah. on, on that one, even though we're not big investors in uh, Texas and Florida, just it's just crowded. It's too efficient for us to get outsized returns. But uh, I don't think that necessarily I mean, there's higher risk of oversupply mm-hmm. than other markets. I think like that would be like a something to consider. It's like a worry card out here that you would want to yeah. keep on your radar. Um, but it's not something that's like a flashing red warning signal, I, I would say. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, I also think, you know, 
it, apartments, looking at national is good to give, you know, the general temperature. Yeah. But when you are looking at supply, you know, apartments aren't a, f- a fungible resource. You can't move an apartment yeah, you, from exactly, Toledo to exactly. Santa Fe or whatever, wherever. Um, and, and people don't move as, you know, even though remote work has made a, a slightly more mobile population, people aren't are, still aren't going to move at the drop of a hat. No, so, no. so when you're looking at supply, and that's going to become increasingly relevant and sensitive over the next 10 years, when you're looking at that, you look at, you know, look at the apartments, look at local local markets and sub markets, because, yeah. uh, because that's going to really, really determine the yeah. success. Yeah. Of any, no, I agree. Matt, let's talk about rent and occupancy. That's kind of like the next section of this Bercadia report. It looks like effective rent is up 14.8% year over year, um, average of $1,736. Occupancy is also up 60 basis points for the year, averaging at 96.8% in the second quarter of 2022. <sighs> Matt, Matt um, that, that's some pretty strong fundamentals. Now, like, obviously, that's juxtaposed with the supply store we were just discussing. Um, a couple notable markets that are doing really well um, uh, that, you know, I think in the Midwest, you might not have the top of the list. Um, that'd be Cincinnati. Um, it's seen some really strong top market performer. Um, as well as Ann Arbor, West Michigan, yeah. some markets that we're in, and then some uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Knoxville, Tennessee, San Diego, Northern New Jersey. Those are pro- top performers by uh, r- occupancy, rent growth, or it's a lot of your um, kind of your standard markets you might see that are just been on growing like gangbusters, Orlando, Tampa, South Florida, Nashville, Raleigh, Las Vegas, mm-hmm. Phoenix, Austin, Jacksonville, Salt Lake City. They're continuing to grow. All of those are growing north of 20%. Um, with Salt Lake City, the lowest growth of that cohort at 20, 20.2, and then Orlando at the top at 26.6 year over year. That's a lot of growth. Yeah, seeing a lot of these Midwestern um, markets in the top of occupancy levels is really interesting. Um, Maybe I, because they're not building. I've been waiting, now. and I haven't been. I haven't seen a whole lot of the typical top performance of rent growth. I haven't seen them sinking down a little bit. Now I have heard that Phoenix may be sinking um, in terms of how fast the rent's growing. Maybe there, maybe it's cooling off. Yeah, um, oscillations but, up and down. Yeah, I don't know. I you know is is occupancy then? Is that kind of a leading indicator of of rent growth? Do you do you watch occupancy because? I, I, yeah, I, okay. I think so. I mean, if the market's so tight, that typically indicates there's more okay. room for growth. Yeah, absolutely. And another, so I think that that's particularly interesting, and maybe show shows the the stability and promise of the of the Midwest as a region. And another thing, you know, looking at national levels, uh, occupancy looks like it is hovering at a still elevated, you know, around ninety five and ninety six as they as they project from twenty twenty three to twenty twenty six. Now, this is just a projection, and a lot of times you just see like the most bland line. <laughs> but their projections for rent growth are actually pretty positive. Act. Um, they, there really is not a cool down, at least in the long term. They figure seasonal dips here and there, um, but the growth in the next few years looks a lot stronger at a glance than the growth pre-pandemic. So, other, you know, with uh, with occupancy fairly elevated and with this with rent growth, you know, chugging along at I think uh, at an increased level through 2026, I. Uh, it's it's really interesting. It it is this story of the demand eating all of these deliveries that are come coming by, and um and there's still yeah. is demand you know behind it. it. it and I I think it's there's a, there's a renewed confidence in the market, which mm-hmm. I think is why we're seeing um you know cap rates staying low. Um, but I think you know comparing to earlier in the year, kind of the beginning of the year, end of twenty one, there was a lot of assumptions that inflation would be like over like yeah. Q1 Q2 of this year, mm-hmm. and that there were forecasts for rent um major decelerations um i think most a lot of the forecasts yeah. were like oh yeah we're gonna see like you know maybe 10 percent rent growth which is still crazy or maybe eight percent mm-hmm. and we're seeing like 14 percent yeah know, so far so i mean it, it's growing stronger than we thought and then i think that's given us more confidence because what people are concerned about is that if growth just is turned off and shut off mm-hmm. if you had these high interest rates you'd be in a really bad you know stagflation you know top heavy environment and we're just not seeing that we're seeing it still being supported um by the fundamentals yeah which is keeping a lot of buyers in the market and then even new um entrants to the market who were like where, where am i going to go mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of uncertainty multifamily seems like the most stable option at least right now in yeah. the market very good point no cool down no implosion no collapse or apocalypse just steady strong growth um at least at least this week <laughs> at least this week We'll see if we have a new report next week yeah. of the opposite. Probably not. Um, and then sales, just, you know, who are the top buyers? Who's buying like the most apartments? Like who are the, who are the big, big, big 
extra <laughs> large players in the market. Um, no surprise here. We've got um, B REIT, um, Blackstone, S REIT, Cortland, and Graystar as the top buyers. I'm um, in the top sellers. We've got Graystar, AIG, Brookfield Asset Management, Alliance Residential, and Crow Holdings. Um, you know, what's trading um, average unit is about 303 units average vintage in the mid 2000s. Um, you ever work with any of these guys? Um, I think we've looked at some Brookfield deals before yeah. and some Graystar deals um, in Cortland, I believe once, but uh, not 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 a regular not a regular basis. Um, average cap rate around is around four percent. I think that that's like a pretty good. I don't think they this is like an empirical number. I think mm-hmm. they just like wrote 4% because I think that's where they thought. And I, th- yeah. and my gut says about the same is cabaret data is so opaque. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a better number than like some BS number from mm-hmm. bad data. Yeah. Um, one thing that I think it's important to mention, and this was very surprising, um, to us, uh, even though we've seen similar metrics, but it's still a little, it's a little shocking is the average price per unit, average price per apartment unit. I mean, in, in the United States right now, is $359,000. That's a lot per unit, especially here in the Midwest. But that national average makes a little bit more sense when you see what some of these large deals are actually trading for. And it begs um, the desire for a median unit sale uh, number, not an average, because let's look at some of these price per units of some of these 50 plus million dollar transactions. I don't see any of our deals in here, Matt, even though we did at least one $50 million plus transaction this year. New York by jury. Um, This is at 8 Spruce Street in New York, New York, 903 units built in 2010, sold for $930 million price per unit, $1,029,000. Um, I remember you could buy an apartment a couple years ago for twenty nine thousand per unit. Not the best apartment, not the best area, but uh, American Copper. This is also New York, built in two thousand fourteen. A million ninety nine thousand per unit for a total sales price of eight hundred thirty seven million dollars. Wow, Matt. Um, and there's some even crazier ones you too. Know, you know, I, uh, this Skylark in Larkspur, California. It's on the bottom left here. And just the picture alone. So it sold oh, that's for beautiful. 300000 at $650,000. Yeah, $300,000. Uh, yeah, $300 and, and at $659,000 per unit. Um, but this is like a garden-style 1972 vintage. This is not like a high-rise. I mean, I'm sure it's been like upgraded. that's what's so interesting to me is like all these other pictures. Look, down, they like look mountains. like downtown. They've got like in the mountains. Yeah. Like, this is like looks like a nice area. But 1972 it, vintage. Yeah. Well, but but here's what California. I think is interesting about it. Is, you know, downtown, downtown, downtown. This could be at least it looks like the suburbs. And um, I wonder how many months where you know where where you get yeah. so many. And and the, the big the shock the big shock for me. This is another 1970 vintage, also in California. So California is like it, it's it's an ass. Like, I don't even know why we're talking about it. It's like yeah. so different. Yeah. But we have to. And it, if anything, to look at how looking at that. What you don't want to hear is a broker. Being like, well, you know, the average price per unit in the United States right now is three hundred and sixty thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So for this, you know, nineteen seventies vintage in the Midwest, you know, paying two hundred and fifty is just totally fine. Yeah. No, that's not the case because here we see that you're using um, twelve twenty one Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica, California, that was built in nineteen seventy one, hundred twenty units, traded for three hundred thirty million dollars at two point seven five million per unit. Yeah. Like, come on, like if, if that's being thrown on the average, that's going to that's going to bring the average up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's why you have to be careful looking at national numbers. It's good information, but just make sure the conclusions that you're drawing from it are are appropriate and you're using it the right way. And again, it's why it's important to look at more granular local data when you're really actually looking to make an investment decision. Yeah. Um, so great report from Berkadia. Now let's jump into another report um, from RealPage, from the RealPage Analytics blog. As expected, apartment rent growth moderates slightly in July. This is a report by Jay Parsons. Um, he's been putting out some really, really great, insightful stuff. Matt, break it down for us. Yeah, another another great report from from Jay Parsons. I've been I've been reading um, a lot. You know, every week it seems like we come across one, and mm. and whether it's this or, or some of his comments, um, make some good elsewhere. LinkedIn posts. Yeah, I was going to say I read I read a few good LinkedIn posts, and uh, and 
I feel like I'm on the same wavelength. I'd love yeah. Jay, Jay Parsons. If you want to come on the great report, and sometimes, I'd love to have yeah, you. Jay open invite. Um, <laughs> and what I like it is that he sometimes like the data that he points to kind of goes against like the general narrative of like, yes, for of sure. Like, Hey, I know this is what everyone thinks, but like, here's the data mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily jiving what, what everyone is assuming. And that's what I was saying last year is like, don't call it a cool down. You can call it. Let's, Let's call it a moderating. Let's call it a lot, but rent growth is or normalization. So, or normalization, but uh, it's hard to call it a cool down when it's already so elevated. Um, if you take out last year's incredible rent growth, and we kind of saw that chart just now, the rent growth of 2022 is stronger than any other year in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so rent. So there's a lot of reasons why this is a, why this is a strong year, and why you really shouldn't call it uh, shouldn't call it a cool down. Um, rent to income rates are really another um, interesting thing. They support further rent growth, and the numbers for rent growth would be. Um, would be incredible again if it wasn't for the easy comparison of 2021. Year over year asking rent was up 12.2% in July and for new new leases the rent growth number was 17.2%. For renewals, and this is just for renewals, rent growth was at 11%. Huge high numbers. I'm particularly uh, surprised at the at the 11% numbers but uh, but but wow. And and then another thing that there's kind of a twist at the end of the article. I don't know if it's I love twist. an article with a twist. <laughs> That's right. He leaves us uh, at the at like the very last line. He, he says um, reduced apartment demand is not especially concerning for now, given ultra low vacancy. But it could become concerning if sustained through 2023 when apartment supply levels will soar to 40 year highs. Um, I think that this increased supply, as we've mentioned before, I think it's going to be absorbed by renters. And um, my expectation is that we are going to see more supply in the hot in-demand markets, um, not necessarily in the ones that are outside the scope of these yeah. popular markets. But again, what and you said it, you said it right, <laughs> is uh, the the supply problems are, are it, it's a local issue. Yeah. You got to check your own backyard because uh, they're not. It's not happening uniformly across the entire uh, the entire nation. Yeah, you know, if I was in Huntsville or um, you know Houston, I'd want to, you know, Austin. I'd yeah. want to be checking on it. It, it and I mm-hmm. think that it's something. It's a it's a concern that's like should be noted. I think in some cases it's it is being discounted, probably appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely something, especially in certain markets, that is a major concern. It's in Indianapolis, like that's not a major concern right now. Yeah, yeah. like we had a budget supply coming on come online downtown a couple of years ago. It was like way. It was like multiples of units that have ever been developed downtown mm-hmm. downtown softened for a couple of years construction pipelines slowed down but everywhere but there's no other construction the rest of indianapolis and people want to live other parts of the yeah. city yeah and we're so undersupplied and we're just still not seeing and we're, we're like we're building less than we've built over the last decade it right is now. And, and that is what you know i said it's it's not a fungible good and and it's also you know it's not like they're building these apartments at such a great rate where yeah. It, yeah. this is a situation where one apartment building could change you know at least like a that submarket. Um, oh yeah. So so it's, it is very interesting. Ab- absolutely. In some submarkets, it can absolutely. Well, let's make a, a little bit of a downshift and talk about um, just more kind of like the housing market. National Housing Survey. This is coming out from Fannie Mae. Um, it, it's one conclusion. Just to fast forward, Matt, mm-hmm. is that when everyone is down on housing, is a typically a great time to buy housing. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that is a very good point. Um, we covered this last month. Still, still worth covering this month, I think, even though the trend's the same. Um, the news, I think, is that the trend is is the same. A, a lot of stuff has happened in the housing market to make to make me think. Well, uh, I don't know if if there are more listings out there. If it's if prices uh, if home values are going down a little bit, I I thought that it might be easier for buyers, but. They're still not agreeing. No. They're not agreeing with me. No. Um, I wish I had the master key to the sentiments of humanity, but I don't. Can't even jimmy the door. Um, but that, that's not to say that these sentiments are invalid. I think they're just illogical. Um, inflation, higher interest rates, and still high home prices are hitting home buyers really hard. And um, and I just think it's I just think it's interesting that the that we are approaching the same level of of low sentiment that we saw in the wake of the great housing crisis and i don't think that um it doesn't feel like 
we are is that appropriate yeah i, yeah, I don't think it's appropriate no um no. but but again i i it's don't just people they're just like burned i think is part of it is because it's like they there's a lot of fomo mm-hmm. they're like screw it compared to like you know they're looking at oh man if i just bought last year when i already thought yeah. the housing market was too expensive and now it's like i know it's a bad time to buy because yeah. I, I can't qualify so of course it's a bad time because i can't even buy it if i wanted to yeah so and and it will be interesting to see you know whether it's uh the 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 sales volumes of single family homes or whether it is home prices or home values but how these sentiments actually result in actions that uh that we can really record in the home in you know the home buying market yeah but uh let's just uh, then shift over i'm on a similar parallel track to um ion housing um, national association of home builders single family homes started in 2021 looks like you know we're still building maybe at a little bit uh lower a little no, bit less. No, a- um, so I, it does feel like that. It may feel like that, <laughs> but we've built a heck of a lot of homes this past well, year. Yeah, we, we, yes, we, we have. I know permit, I think permits have fallen. Yeah. And that's outside this report, Matt. Mm-hmm. Break well, it down. So, so basically, nationally, 1,133,145 new single family units were started in 2021. That's 14% higher than the units started in 2020, which was the fastest growth rate since 2023 and the highest count of starts since the Great Recession. Hold on. Highest great growth rate since 2023? So, I'm sorry. The, 2013? Uh, 2013. Yeah, I say <laughs> uh, From the future. Yeah, yeah. It's higher than the future. Well, it was the point is there was a lot of growth and this sentiment is still very low so what the only thing that i can think of here is that we've got so much high demand it's again it's eating all this supply up it's not really moving any kind of it's not really making a material impact in prices uh or or the overall environment it has hit you know the home builders have definitely started softening they're they're pretty sensitive to all this and and i know that they've they've slowed slowed down their permits i mean 2021 was gangbusters Mm -hmm. and 2022 the first half i know was but i I think they have slowed down you know kind of rolling out building new building new homes and that that could lead to further supply shocks you know as we still have demand but we ended up never buying the houses yeah. that we needed that makes building. sense and i wonder if it's they're talking about you know these projects that were started maybe in 2021 and then they're finishing now but if a similar project came up and came up now they probably wouldn't pursue it yeah um, i think so. well certainly not speculative yeah developments where they're like hey i mean rate anyone can borrow free money is being you know sloshed around mm-hmm. uh, you know yeah i'm gonna come in to build because I, don't, I can't build fast enough now it's like well a big chunk of you know anyone who's thinking about getting buying a home for the first time they've just been taken out of the market yeah so definitely slowed down that largest demographic millennials have certainly been hampered yeah. by that those who missed out um very much on unfortunately well matt this is a jam-packed full report some shocking developments um and some interesting conclusions Fortunately, you can find these reports every single week on the Gray Report. Whether you're watching on YouTube, you're listening on the podcast, you are catching us on the newsletter that's delivered to your inbox every Thursday morning at 8.30 Eastern. We also have grayreport.com. It is the leading multifamily intelligence aggregator. You're not going to find anything else like it anywhere on the internet um, or your cell phone or um, you know the <laughs> wire uh telegram it, it just That's there's right. nothing nothing even close <laughs> to it um so you know check it out greatreport.com make sure you've subscribed to the youtube channel um that way you're going to get a little alert it's like hey there's a new episode of the great report get your download of all of your multifamily intel we'll bring it straight to your ears every single week give us a comment think think we're right smart dumb wrong most likely wrong not right maybe we've got a couple <laughs> things going in the right direction let us know um, we love your support and then share this because one that helps the algorithm, more people can get this content. We're trying to bring this information, you know, free to you because we think it's going to make a more efficient market and the more educated people are, the better decisions we can all make. We hope this is a value to you and you can show your appreciation for listening by giving it a share after you've liked, of course you've subscribed. And lastly, if you're an accredited investor, hop on <laughs> over to gray.fund. It is the landing page for gray capitals. Uh, multifamily investment fund again only open to accredited investors but we're targeting some really exciting opportunities in midwest united states 
all existing cash flowing assets, credible properties where we got two assets in the fund. We got a bunch of deals in the pipeline. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Again, you have to be accredited. Hop on over to Gray.Fund, download the deck, schedule an appointment, and learn more. Any weekend plans, Matt? A lot of relaxation. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Have a great rest of your week. A great weekend. Catch you on next episode of The Great Report.